This morning we look at meeting your match from Genesis chapter 29 verses 1 to 30. As we continue our series in Genesis, which has been quite a, a few months for now, uh, we are looking at the life of the third patriarch, Jacob. By, by this stage in his life, I know it's a little bit hard to, to, to work it out, the times and, and all of that, but he is in his mid-70s, all right? He's not a spring chicken anymore. He is running away from home on a journey that is about 800 kilometres. So imagine, I suppose, walking from here to, to Melbourne in gumboots. It's been done before. And he's on his journey to meet or to see, to go and, and stay for a while at the mum's side of the family because of the troubles at home. His brother Esau wants his head on a platter, I suppose. But on his journey at Bethel, he has an encounter with God that we spoke about last week. This is the stairway coming down from heaven and earth and the angels descending, ascending, and there God appears to him. And he heard these unconditional words of blessing and protection over his life, which is totally undeserving, undeserving on a, on, a, on a scoundrel that he was and everything that he did to his, his brother, his dad and all of that. And yet he still receives God's blessing. In return, Jacob made this, un, this rather than unconditional vow because of God appearing to him, he makes this conditional vow that the Lord will be his God as long as God keeps his side of the bargain. I was like, man, you still don't get it, do you? Oddly enough, the words that Jacob spoke to God last week were the first genuine words that we have in Scripture of Jacob actually speaking spiritual words about God, to God. Imagine growing up in a Christian family and waiting till you're in your 70s to proclaim the name of the Lord. It takes a while for some, doesn't it? So let's look at what we can learn here. The journey continues, verses 1 to 8. The journey continues. Then Jacob, in verses 1 and 2, then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern people. And there he saw a well in the field and with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were, were watered from the well and the stone over the mouth of the well was large. It says here that Jacob continued on his journey. Seems pretty obvious, but let's draw a couple of points from this. Firstly, it tells me that he kept going. He didn't stay in the one spot where we had Jacob having this marvellous vision of God called Bethel. Bethel actually means the house of God. And he didn't stay there and plant himself and seeking to relive the experience over and over and over again, just hoping that it will happen again because he said, this place is the house of God. We're going to stay here. I think sometimes people are tempted to do that. They have a wonderful experience that they have to relive it over and over again 
forgetting that we are people on a pilgrimage. There are precious places in our journey and we will have some wonderful experiences in some of these places. Many of us can recall wonderful experience in church camps and youth camps and all of that and, and being at meetings and revivals and people flocking to the front and dedicating their lives to God and evangelism and almost a revival breaking out and we say, man, this is marvellous, we should have this all the time. It's almost like we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I love this spot. I want to be here. Okay, I'm not going anywhere. But we have to move. There will be precious places ahead of us. We must move on. This is why Paul didn't say, let us find a good spot and settle down. Many of our retirees are thinking, oh, I've got to find that spot. Any of those hoping to retire just going to find a good spot, settle down and sing Kumbaya for the rest of my days. He didn't put a, a time limit on this or an age limit. What he did say was, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's what he said. Secondly, we find that Jacob was revitalised. The literal translation in the Hebrew means then Jacob lifted up his feet. He lifted up his feet. Unusual expression, but it tells us that after his vision at Bethel, he had a new lease on life after this encounter with God. Before this encounter, his heart was filled with fear, running away from his brother. Now there's a new spring in his step. Before he felt the weight of his past catching up with him, now he looks with excitement to the future. And yes, before he might have been running for his life and now he's running to find a wife. Anyway, sad dad joke. On and on he walks purposefully and energetically to find a place called Haran in the east, a community on the other side of the the great Euphrates River, which is modern-day Iraq. The journey was long, as you can imagine, uneventful and tiring in those big wide open spaces unlike your uh, trip to Melbourne these days there are cafes, there are stopovers there are picnic spots, there are submarines that aren't supposed to be there there's all these things the journey to Ur was nothing like that there were no cafes, no shops and in those places people would usually hang out in a particular spot, a well. Today we might know them as as drinking holes or something like that because that's where they tended to keep their animals. But it was also a meeting place. 
Our Saviour had some ministry around the world as well. So Jacob turns up and meets these shepherds and asks about the welfare. If they knew a certain Laban, is he well? They say, yeah, he's fine. Friendly bunch, these shepherds. Not exactly in a hurry to get things done, to move the world. They just sit around well. Jacob is curious as to why nothing is happening. He's just been journeying. He's full of energy. Come on, guys. What's going on? They're just waiting there, taking it easy, country folk. Their speech probably a little bit slow and taking it easy. And they're just waiting around, waiting for someone to come and we'll move the stone. But until everybody gets here, we're not going to move the stone. Hey, Manuel, this gringo wants us to, to move the stone. I don't feel like moving the stone, Luis. It's a little bit too hot at that moment, you know. Tell the gringo we're having a siesta. And that, uh, you know, these gringos, they call it power nap. Oh, power nap. Now it's a siesta, okay? We're just going to lie down here for a while. Come on, guys. Get some enthusiasm happening here. Come on. Well, the world is covered up with this huge stone for a reason, obviously, to prevent sand from clogging it up and uh, animals falling in, fouling the water. Maybe even just a sign that a, a big rancher owned the whole thing and he had a stamp on it. But this provided an opportunity, setting up for what was about to happen. In verses 9 to 14, meet the family. Meet the family, verses 9 to 14. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. Providentially, Rachel, Laban's daughter, is on the way. When he saw his cousin Rachel, that he had never met, he gets moving. Arnold gets pumping. Hey, let's move the stone now, okay? They're still having this siesta zone. Now we're not moving no sticking stone, okay? But Arnold, you know, he just rolls up his sleeves, you know, and opens his shirt just a little bit. He's, he wasn't a hairy chest because his brother was a hairy one. He, he was all shaved and beautiful. Wonderful Arnold, you know? He had it all. He was going to impress the lady, you see. That lady was coming up. 
And when there's a lady to impress, suddenly he's strong, man. Very strong. Yeah, I'm going to move the stone by myself. I'm going to do it. And he does it. Man. Impressive. But then, after he waters the sheep and all of that, he says who he introduced himself, and he starts crying. What's that all about? I thought you were Arnold, you know? And now you're, he starts to cry. What's, that's not the, oh, I thought you were all tough and everything, and now you're this sensitive bloke. You're like, oh, he's a new age sensitive guy. What's going on here? I think he sobs because I think he's emotionally spent and providentially God leads him to a place where things begin to unpack. He sees God leading him after this very long journey to a place where God will provide for him for a family. He meets, he's going to meet the relatives. This long journey has taken its toll. And he sees the steps in God's leading. The fact that God was going to be with him, was going to protect him. And he's saying, it's actually coming together. There's a new maturing in Jacob. And so he cries. Uncle Laban's initial response as he is introduced is quite brotherly, quite hospitable. He says, you are my own flesh and blood. Here, Jacob discovers that God's providence is both perfect and complete. And he's about to discover just how complete God's providence really is. Because God led him into a very tough school of Uncle Laban to mould him, to to shape him, to, to mature him. In the last couple of weeks, we have spoken about God's unconditional grace on Jacob, scandalous grace in the life of this man who did not deserve it. It doesn't make sense. It's just not right, we say. Yet his grace continues even through the hard times that he's going to go through. We will talk about that. God's grace continues in this schooling that he's going to receive in the household of Uncle Laban. So in verses 9 to 14 we meet the family and in verses 15 to 30 we meet the real family. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because... You're a relative of mine, should you work for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. 
Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work with you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better for me to give to you than someone else. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. A whole month goes by, meeting the family and everything is hunky-dory. It's really nice meeting the Rellos, isn't it? And then one day Laban pretends to be magnanimous by saying that up until that point he has been working for free. On the surface, on the surface it, it, it appears quite innocent and there's nothing wrong with it. But until that point, Jacob had been like a son in the house. He had rights to food and he had rights to servants as well and and profits from his labours. He was part of the family. Now there is a shift in the relationship as Laban is in effect shrinking Jacob from part of the family to the status of a hired hand, a paid worker. Jacob meets his match in this man who is sly, who is cunning, just as Jacob had been. Jacob is no longer in mum's kitchen trying to work out the next recipe. He is now in uncle's labour camp. Rebecca was a bit sly and deceitful herself, but her brother, Laban, just took it a few more notches up. This new Jacob, however, he has... He is changing. God is moulding him. He is changing. And because of his love, he is deeply in love with Rachel. He accepts the boss's daughter as, as the wages, as the true wages. So he says, Rachel, I will work for you for seven years. I will work for her for seven years to marry her. The going rate, the going rate for a dowry, because this is what it is, for a bride, as, as someone as beautiful as Rachel, would have been about three and a half years. Because of his love, he doubled that to seven. And they, I love those words, they just seem like only a few days to him because of love. He was floating on air. It's Do you remember reading this story when you were younger, right? And you just, the first time you read this story, it's, it's, it reads like a, like a novel, a romantic novel, like a chick flick, I suppose. You just know that 
these are meant for each other. There's so much love. It's all going to be beautiful, happily ever after, isn't it? They deserve each other. I know that. I know that. The plot thickens, however. There is another daughter, Leah. Leah, her real name is Cow. I know, don't. I'm not going to say anything. Rachel, her name is female lamb or you, not you, her. You know what I mean. E-W-E. Leah is not as attractive as Rachel. Her eyes are in particular singled out as being weak or delicate. They, uh, men in those days want to see a sparkle, wanted to see a sparkle in the eyes of somebody who they wanted to, to marry. I don't know, in some songs they call it the fire in her eyes. It just wasn't there. So, there were no proposals for Leah. Nobody showed up wanting to take her hand. And so, not many suitors and dashing Jacob was in love with Rachel, the younger one. And so Dad had to do something. So Jacob served seven years, great proof of the love for Rachel. And there is this curious phrase, isn't it, that uh, the seven years were just like a day. The days are long, but when you're in love, the years are short. So Laban arranged the wedding feast and uh, in those days it was the custom that uh, in weddings today it's the same thing that the, the bride wears the veil and it was at night there's a bit of wine served on the tables it was all set up you see Father-in-law, Laban, the boss, father-in-law, uncle, everything. And and Jacob had no reason to believe that behind the veil was anyone other than his beloved Rachel. And yet in the morning when he wakes up, once the effects of the wine and the darkness darkness of the desert night subsided, he woke up and looked across. It was the wrong bride. There is a series on Channel 7. haven't watched it. I just saw the titles. Seven Years Switch. How good is that? Huh? This is the Seven Years Switch on steroids, let me tell you. Let's be honest and say that this was a very low, very wicked act. Imagine the, the pain felt by Rachel waiting and and being faithful, remaining celibate. That's the implication of the scriptures here. For seven years waiting for that day where their marriage would be consummated, the long wait, only to be deceived in this way. How cruel is that? How cruel is that? 
it must have been in some ways a bit like a, a hammer to, to Jacob's heart. Look at some things, how he was hit. The first hit was that Jacob had to learn to respect the rights of the firstborn. This is the first hit. Well, around here, around these parts, Jacob, we don't marry the younger daughters before we marry the firstborn. Isn't that ironic, isn't it? Jacob had stolen the rights of his firstborn brother but now he's required to honour the rights of a firstborn Leah. Of course, this is no excuse for what Laban did, but it's interesting that God is going to make Jacob taste the corresponding bitter fruit of his own deception of Esau in his own life. The second hit was Jacob being deceived by Leah's father in a similar way as Jacob's deceived his own father Isaac. Remember how he went into Isaac's tent where father Isaac is in the dark. He is blind. He doesn't know who's coming into the room. Seven years later, Leah goes into Jacob's tent disguised as Rachel, the plot by Laban, just as Jacob had gone into there, disguised as Esau, the plot by Rebekah. The two brothers and sisters, the brothers are into plots. In his dark room, Jacob thinks he's getting the second born but gets the first born, just as Isaac was deceived. The third hit is that in Laban, Jacob meets himself. In Laban, Jacob meets himself. Jacob meets his own sins in someone else. Soon he will know what Esau felt like when he was tricked out of something that was precious to him. Almost a case of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jacob is being made to see just how despicable his tricky ways are. It's all part of the training in his life of him meeting his match. Now Laban will offer to let Jacob marry Rachel as well but with one condition. He must serve Laban for another seven years. At the very least, he didn't make him wait another seven years but just wait a week and then he will both have a down payment and then have to work the rest later on. 14 years all together for the two wives. Now Uncle Laban is going to change Jacob's life forever. Up until this point, Jacob had relied on his shrewdness, his ability to take care of himself, to be a deal maker, to get out of trouble. I'm sure you know people like that. Maybe you're a person like that. Whatever situation, let's work out a deal with whoever to get us out of a pickle. Here, there was no way out. So what are the lessons for us? What are the lessons? As we bring this story to a close, the Lord 
gives consequences for Jacob corresponding to his crime. In Galatians we read, Do not be deceived, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. Galatians 6, 7. Jacob definitely reaped what he sowed. And the people will probably say, this is just another form of karma, which is big in Hinduism and Buddhism. Karma, the law of retribution. No, it is not. Sometimes God allows us to cross paths with the Uncle Labans of this world because he's going to teach us important lessons and even discipline us. And when God disciplines us, it is not in the context of retribution, it is in the context of love. What happens when you cannot get yourself out of a tight spot, when you run out of deals? The Bible says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So when you are disciplined, when you are rebuked, it's not in the context of retribution or punishment, it is in the context of a discipline where he's trying to mould you. Of a relationship, as a father does to a son, until you get it, until you understand and if you don't get it, here we're going to go again. Another lesson and another lesson until you get it. If he didn't love you, he would have just given up and said, oh, don't worry about him. He's gone. Jesus told a parable of a son who had it all in his father's household. Yet he wanted out. He wanted freedom, he wanted more as he felt that his father was holding out on him. And this prodigal son wasn't happy in the love in the the household of the father where he had everything. He wanted more. And so he went and ended up in a pigsty. And it was in the pigsty He learned the lesson he could not learn, he would not learn at home. He learned obedience, he learned respect, he he learned unconditional love and he learned what he was missing out on. Appreciate the love of the family, of the father. John Newton said in his famous hymn, Through many dangers, toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me thus far and grace will lead me home. The toils and the snares are things that God will use to discipline us, to mould us, to make us into someone usable. If you resist this, You're resisting his grace, his love, his discipline. 
And for the most part, godly character is not developed in the good times of life as much as we love to spend a lot of time in the good times of life. But godly character, for the most part, is actually developed in what we define as the bad times of life. And godly character is developed in your life as as you work with, respond positively to unjust treatment. And God might send the Labans of this world to be your boss, to be a neighbour, to be someone who is just continually a thorn in your flesh and you're saying, oh my goodness, I cannot cope anymore with this injustice. And yet, that person could very well be a tool of God for your moulding. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 3-4, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And when the Lord disciplines, I repeat it again, he does it in the context of love to his children. He does love Jacob, absolutely. And he loves you and me. And whatever it is that God wants to do in your life, let him do it. And he will use all types of things to shape us and discipline us and mould us to make us as he wants us to be, the image of his son. May God bless us.